with you something that's been on my heart. I want to talk about a greater harvest. A greater harvest. And I want to talk about that to you because I want you to do something this year. I want you to take a fresh look at where you're at. And I want you to do something that I believe this church and, and people of this church have done in measure. But I believe it can be done in a greater measure and more consistently. And, uh, and I'm going to ask you to do that today because you individually need a greater harvest of God's fruit in your life. I need a more abundant harvest of the nature of Christ in my being. And as a whole, this church needs a greater harvest of what God wants to produce through us and in us. Amen. Would you agree with that? Amen. Well, you don't get a greater harvest without more work. Harvest are not created through uh, seances and, and, and imaginary activity. Harvest comes by labor. Amen. Comes by sowing. There's no sowing, there's no reaping. Amen. And so we want to look at a verse of Scripture. Very familiar verse of Scripture, but keep your Bibles open because we're going to study this passage. And I got a, a lot of things I want to try to pull together here in this passage this morning. Galatians chapter 6. I want to begin reading verse 6 because it will be a, a fair portion of my focus, but in the, in, I'm going to read it because I'm going to be dealing with some things there, but the, the verses that will particularly uh, deal with my subject of a greater harvest, you will readily see. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Now I want you to recognize right here this morning, every one of us is sowing. You can look at what the harvest is in your life and you will know how you're sowing. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Would you say amen to the reading of God's word? You may be seated. A greater harvest speaks in this passage of a sowing. Two sowings, one to the flesh and one to the spirit, to harvest, a harvest of corruption, a harvest of life. I want to share with you in this passage three things connected with this harvest and its product. I'm going to first of all deal with the context because Paul did not just pull these words out of the air. 
It is here that he writes about the sowing and the reaping. Now, he's written about that in other epistles. He writes about uh, and uses these illustrations. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about that one plants, another waters. But God gives the increase. He says, I have planted. He talks about Paulus, his water. But it's God that gives the increase. He uses an illustration. In 2 Timothy, he talks about it. And he talks about he that labors is first partaker of the fruits. He uses the illustration of a farmer who works hard. And after he has worked hard, then he is a participant and he gets to enjoy the fruits of his labor. So it's not a, an illustration that Paul is unfamiliar with or that his readers are unfamiliar with. But it's a very familiar illustration. And even for us here, we live in in farm country in eastern North Carolina, I am amazed, quite frankly, the amount of farm country that exists in America. Uh, I was reminded of it in the last couple of days as we were uh, flying to Florida and, and back, and, and you get in that plane, and you, you look down on the land. It looks like a patchwork quilt as you look down upon it, and you'll see these massive fields, and, and then you'll see sections of forest, and then you'll see uh, sections of homes, and sometimes you'll see little houses dotted in among the fields and the forest and, and things. But I get amazed at how much of America's land is actually farmland, at least as we were looking here in eastern North Carolina and, and the eastern part of the United States. But this idea is that we understand, even in our life, probably everybody in here has had some experience of, of sowing and reaping. You have, whether you've sowed some flowers, if you're not a farmer, then probably you've planted a plant somewhere here and there. You've put a tree in your yard. You've, you've done something by which you planted something and expected to reap a harvest from what you planted. Nobody sows a seed without going back and checking up on it and, and, and looking for a particular type of harvest. You sow a particular seed, you sow it in a particular place in order to get a particular product. You're looking for something. And so these are familiar terms to us that we can understand. But I want to take it and deal with it in the context and the instruction that Paul is using to give us on this here today. Now watch... <clears throat> What is, first of all, the context in which this is written? So he is all throughout this epistle. What is the problem? And let me, let me briefly tell you what has happened so you can understand the, uh, what Paul is saying here in this passage. Uh, he has, of course, established these are the churches of Galatia. These churches have been established on Paul's first missionary journey that he will be sent out with Barnabas. He and Barnabas are going to travel through this countryside and they're going to establish churches in Jesus Christ. They will make a trip through them in Acts chapter 13. Uh, they will go in the first part of 14. They'll go through this area in the latter part of 14. They're going to travel back through those same churches and as they go back through them, they're going to ordain elders and establish leadership and government in each church so that it, they're not just going to leave a, a group of people together just kind of doing their thing and going through the motions. They will come to the churches and 
that have been established, that new groups that have come together as a result of believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then they've given a little bit of time to see who the mature men and qualified men are among them. And then they ordain those men, take a vote of the people, and by a show of hands, they will ordain these men to be elders. It's in Acts 14. You can read about it. And they will ordain them to be elders. Probably somewhere between Acts 14 and Acts 15. In that time, Paul will return back to Antioch. He will go back there and they will remain there preaching the gospel for a while. But it's going to be in that time frame that some men who have come down from Jerusalem, they're going to come into these churches and they are Jewish men. They are Jewish Christians, if you will. We call them Judaizers because they are concerned about this influx of Gentile people into the church of Jesus Christ. And they are concerned, that the more concerned about these Gentiles being more Jewish than Christian. They believe that they must observe all the particular, all of the uh, of the particulars, if you will, of the law in order for them to be Christian. They are concerned about their diet. They're concerned about several things, but more even particularly, they want to make sure the men are circumcised, and they want to circumcise these men. And these these Judaizers go down here to uh, to make a mark, basically, in the flesh of the men and circumcise them because they want them to identify with a Jewish heritage more so than a Christian heritage. And they want to keep Christianity under the umbrella of Judaism. Now understand something that is contrary to the gospel. And the gospel, of course, we know that we are saved by faith and not by works. That doesn't mean we avoid the works of goodness and the works of truth. No, sir. We are a people created to good works. But these things that were the Jewish particulars are the particulars of an Abrahamic covenant and a Jewish covenant that formed a nation of Hebrews are not things that are mandatory upon the church of Jesus Christ and did not add anything to the salvation of God's people. In other words, the celebration of the ceremonies of the law and the following of the tokens and the outward things that, that identified the children of Israel as the children of Israel were not mandatory upon the, the, the Christian because he is saved by faith. In other words, he did not become united to God because he obeyed a Jewish law. He didn't get saved because he attended Passover. He didn't get saved because he let a Jewish man operate on him and circumcise him. He did not receive pardon for his sins because he offered up a lamb. He didn't get pardon for his sins because he went to Jerusalem. He got saved. He was reconciled to God. He was declared righteous. He was entered into the fellowship of the Spirit. He was united with Jesus Christ by believing in the word and the gospel of God and he received the Holy Ghost and became a temple of the living God and he didn't do any of that by the acts that identify a Jew as a Jew and make a the experience that a Jew has none of that came because he participated in those events it came because he heard the gospel and believed the message and allowed God to do a work in his life so that's what's happened in these churches. 
Pagans have gotten saved. They've turned from their idolatry and they have given their hearts unto Jesus Christ. And now sometimes these men come down there and they're wanting to circumcise them and they're wreaking havoc. They are, there are some that are arguing with them and saying, no way, that is not the case. What is going on here? That's not what we got saved by. I didn't get, Paul never told us that. When Paul came down and preached to us and Barnabas came down and preached to us, they never said we had to get circumcised. They didn't tell us we had to go to Jerusalem every year and celebrate Passover. They didn't tell us we had to go celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles every year. Oh, we believe in the moral of, uh, part of the law. We believe that we need to keep uh, the commandments and the moral commandments of God. That wasn't an issue. The issue was not uh, about moral commandments. It was not about whether or not they could, could or should or should not commit adultery, should or should not lie. That's not what the debate's about. The debate is about whether or not uh, that you participate in those external ceremonies that identify you, not so much, uh, not as a Christian, but as a Jew uh, and as a part of that nation of Israel. Uh, and so they said, we didn't have to have any of that to be saved. Uh, uh, yes, we were baptized, uh, but we weren't baptized under Moses. Uh, we weren't baptized under the law. We weren't baptized uh, under Joshua. We were baptized under Jesus Christ. Uh, hallelujah. Yes, we have a celebration, and it's the bread uh, and the wine, uh, and we celebrate the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. Yes, our Passover is Jesus Christ. We have a Passover, but it's not at Jerusalem. It's right here as the temple of the Holy Ghost. Hallelujah. Yes, but you're saved. You want to keep the law, right? Well, sure. But those laws are not moral laws, sir. But they convince some. The result of that is, is that in the church, folks begin to debate. Folks begin to argue with one another. Those who used to go to the table in love and unity and harmony begin to fuss at one another. They begin to argue with one another. This begin to create cliques, we call them. Sex, S-E-C-T-S, in the church, little groups that begin to form and conflict was in the church and they begin gnawing at one another. This is quite contrary to what they were birthed. When they got saved, there was love. When they got saved, there was harmony. When they got saved, the church was unified. But now since the Judaizers have come, they no longer speak more about Christ. They speak more about circumcision. They no longer talk about the peace and the joy of God. They speak about ceremonies and they argue about rituals and they argue about whether they have to do this thing and commit, keep this feast and whether your son should be circumcised or not be circumcised. They're arguing about things that had no bearing on their salvation and did not in any way make them a Christian. So Paul will hear about it and he will pin this letter to them. It will probably be this letter that is pinned in Acts 14 that will cause the uproar and that will will have the church call for a decision so that the decision that is made in Acts chapter 15 with the calling of the elders council at Jerusalem will probably come as a result of this letter and the spark it has ignited throughout the Gentile world and the church world in general and they said it's fine, it's time rather that we get a decision on this matter and that decision will come in Acts chapter 15 
15 that will be in full agreement with Paul's writings to the churches of Galatia. Now watch what he writes to them. He writes to them in chapters 1 and chapter 2. And he begins to tell them. He tells them, first of all, I, I'm going to tell you, I am absolutely astounded at how quickly, because it hasn't been very long, that Paul had went through there. And these churches have been established. They haven't been established for years. Some of them have been established for months. I mean, they're not 20-year-old churches. These are not folks who have been in, but Paul is amazed at how that you could have got a hold of this thing and then so quickly turn to another gospel. How is it that you, the gospel that I gave you, the gospel that saved you, the gospel that brought you liberty, the gospel that brought you freedom, the gospel that got rid of your guilt, the gospel that got you full of the Holy Ghost, the gospel that liberated you from the bondage of sin, the gospel by which you spoke in tongues and prophesied of the goodness and the the glory of God. Oh, that gospel that saved you. I marvel that you could turn to something and think uh, that there is something in the law that could supersede something that is in Jesus Christ. Uh, I just got to wonder how you could begin in the spirit and wind up in the flesh. Uh, I got to wonder how you could be a people who came to life uh, because you received Christ, uh, not because you took a trip to Jerusalem. Amen. <clears throat> And so he begins to tell them that I marvel you are so soon removed from the gospel of Jesus Christ unto another gospel, which is not a gospel. It's not another gospel. There is no other gospel. And he tells them not once. He tells them twice to confirm it. He says, I want you to know something right here and now. If anybody... I don't care if it's an angel. I don't care if it's a preacher. I don't care if it's a priest. I don't care who he is. I don't care what his pedigree is. I don't care what his, what his uh, doctrinal background is. If he comes and preaches to you another gospel that I preach to you, let him be cursed. Let God's judgment be upon him. Let him be a man that's an outcast and cursed. And Paul says it not once, he says it twice. You want to talk about the gospel I preach? Let me tell you about the gospel I preach. He said, I didn't get this from men. I got this directly from Jesus himself. I'm telling you, I didn't go down there. I didn't get it from Peter. I didn't get it from James. I didn't get it from John. I saw the Lord. Glory to God. I got this directly from the king and the head of the church himself that the gospel I preach is none other than the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he tells them, he said, not only that, I went down to Jerusalem. I went down there, I saw Peter, and James, the brother of Jesus, they came in. We told them what we'd been doing, Barnabas and I. We told them where we'd gone. We told them the work that God was doing. And they saw that the gospel of the uncircumcision was committed unto us. They gave us the right hands of fellowship. They said, we receive you, brethren. And Paul, what you are preaching is right. God has sent you to the Gentiles. Go bring a people out worthy of his name. You and Barnabas are going to go to the Gentiles. Peter, your ministry is among the Jews and the circumcision. You go to the Jews and Paul to the Gentiles. And he said, they didn't add anything to us. They didn't tell us we were failing in our preaching. They didn't tell us that, hey, you need to add this into your message. They said exactly what me and Barnabas were doing, which is the gospel you folks received, was the right gospel. And he said, you turned to something else. Oh, and he said, by the way, when Peter came down to Antioch, where Paul may have been when he wrote this, when Peter came down, those same guys that are causing problems among you, 
Peter got caught up in the same thing. Because at first when he came down among the Gentiles, he ate with the Gentiles. He lived like a Gentile. He fellowship. He treated that Gentile as an equal, an equal member of the body of Christ. Oh, yes. Uh, he didn't look upon Gentiles and, and Jews uh, as being uh, uh, races that were one was above another. He saw that you were all one in Jesus Christ. And he ate with you. And he lived with you Gentile people. But when he came down to Antioch uh, and then he got carried away, these Judaizers came. Uh, and they made even Peter afraid. He's an apostle and he got carried away and Barnabas got carried away with their hypocrisy and he said that whenever that happened he said and they got carried away and here Peter separated himself from the Gentiles and then didn't meet with the Gentile Christians any longer and he did but division in the body of Christ. He's over here eating with the Jews now and his Jewish brethren being true to his Jewish roots and he's spurning his Gentile brothers and no longer wants to eat with them and brings division and Paul said I withstood him I stood him right up to the face and said if thou being a Jew livest after the manner of the Gentile then why do you compel the Gentile to live like the Jews you're a Jew but you've been living like a Gentile then why are you telling the Gentile now to live like a Jew don't you understand that we have been saved by faith as well as thee you may be a Jew Peter but you didn't get saved because a priest in Jerusalem offered up a lamb. You didn't get the Holy Ghost because you celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. You didn't get the Holy Ghost because you celebrated the Feast of Pentecost. You got the Holy Ghost because you put your faith in Jesus Christ and he saved you and you believed. Hallelujah. You weren't saved by the law. You were saved by Christ. In other words, your salvation came the same way their salvation came. You're living the way you live for the same reason they're living the way they live. You're not living the way you live as a Holy Ghost filled man because you're obeying a Jewish law. You're living the way you live as a Holy Ghost filled man because you receive Christ and you receive the Spirit. In other words, you heard the word and believed, Peter, and that's why you're living the way you're living. And that's the way your Gentile brothers are living. You're obeying the same moral law. The life that's in you came the same way. All that's in your life has come by the same path, Jesus Christ. Amen. Then why are you now telling them and connecting them with Moses? They've been united with Jesus. Circumcision isn't going to make them better. Circumcision isn't going to make them a greater Christian. I'm telling you, if Jesus can't do it, I'll guarantee you a mark in your body won't do it. That's right. So they've been debating through Paul's letter, we learned the history. He says, who's bewitched you? Somebody's cast a spell over you. You've gotten captivated by some fancy pants preacher. And you've left. And you're refusing to obey the truth. He said, what's wrong with you? You receive the spirit by the works of the law, the hearing of faith. Tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. He says, let me tell you something about the law. Those fellows want to talk about the law? Let me bring you something out of the law. Woo. 
In the law, there's an allegory. There are two women. Yeah. And he said, there are two, or two sons. There's one father, Abraham, but he has two sons by two women. He said, these represent two covenants. And these two sons represent two perspectives. One is a son who's a product of the flesh. He came as a result of the sowing to the flesh. His name is Ishmael. Yeah. He's produced by Sarah and Abraham's own human ideas. We're going to do God's will and accomplish God's purpose through our understanding. God says we're going to have inheritance. I'm barren, so Abraham, it must be through my uh, uh, servant Hagar. So you take Hagar, and that will be uh, uh, translated to be my son and your son. And this is how God's going to bring it about. In other words, they thought they could produce the very purposes of God through their own humanistic ingenuity. It's nothing more than a sowing to the flesh, and it reaped corruption. He said, this guy's Ishmael. He said, but then Abraham had another son. And this is not a son of the flesh, he's a son of promise. He didn't come about uh, because uh, the flesh worked uh, and manipulated uh, and they didn't, they didn't bring any kind of, uh, you know, some kind of contraption uh, to make her more uh, 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 fertile. He didn't bring in any of that. No, God promised a son and he kept his word. Ah, hallelujah. Woo. It doesn't matter if the womb has died. It doesn't matter if the flesh has shriveled up. It doesn't matter if you put it up and locked it up in a grave. He still rolls the stone away. He still brings life. Wherever death is, the promise of God can reach and the word of God can penetrate it and bring it unto life. This is Isaac. These represent two perspectives. The son of the flesh and the son of promise. He said, and you know what? That represents our life, if you will. He said, he talks about those today, just like it was then, it's happening now. In that day, guess what happened? Well, you had Ishmael, he grew up in the home, and he's 13 years old when Isaac is born. Isaac is born in the house. Oh, Ishmael doesn't have a party. He ain't ready to celebrate. No, sir, he gets jealous. Mm. I'm no longer number one dude. And Sarah, she looks at her handmaid. You got no place here. And she, oh, Ishmael goes out there and he begins to pick on that little lad. He's 13 years younger. Ishmael's a strapping boy. He can bully him. He can pick on him. He can persecute him. And Sarah sees this. She said, oh, I don't think so. It ain't happening around here. I ain't giving my inheritance to the son of a slave girl. Ah, no, Sarah. Abraham is going to inherit this. Oh, I'm sorry. Isaac is going to inherit this. And oh, Abraham, he didn't like this. We're not treating Ishmael very well. And God says, you listen to her because it's right. He said, the seed of Hagar will not inherit with the seed of Sarah. Oh, of Abraham. No, sir. Isaac is the promised son. Isaac will be the one that I'll enter in the covenant with. No, sir. You put out the bond woman. Cast out the son. Cast out 
Ishmael, but that's the way it was. It was flesh against spirit. It was the son of the flesh persecuting the son of promise, and that's what's happening in the midst of you guys. We got the children of the flesh. Oh, they think they're birthing this thing because they're circumcised, and they got this thing by nature. He said, but they are the product of flesh, but we're the sons of promise. We have received the promise of the Holy Ghost. We have received the Spirit by promise, yes. not by obedience to a law. Amen. He said, what they did is exactly what y'all are doing. Because in your church, you've got the sons of the flesh, and you've got the sons of promise, and they're in conflict with one another. Hmm. So, he comes on down to chapter and he gives him that. He talks about the two covenants, the two women, Hagar and Sarah, the two sons. He comes to chapter 5. And again, he's going to talk about what's happened to you folks. Who is it? Where does persuasion come from? It didn't come from him that calls you. Uh, a little leaven. A little leaven that whole lump. He goes on to talk to him. He says, let me tell you something here. He says... If you will walk in the Spirit, he said, you better take care for yourself. This liberty you've been given in Jesus Christ that doesn't become an occasion in your flesh. He said, because take heed that if you bite and devour one another, you don't consume one another. In other words, if Ishmael's left in the house, right now he's picking on him. Soon he'll take a dagger to his throat. The end result of this battle is someone's coming out on top. And if you don't get rid of the son of the flesh, the son of the promise is going to be destroyed. So he begins on to tell him. Let's talk about this flesh a moment. He said, I'm going to tell you something right now. If you'll walk in the spirit, you won't fulfill the lust in the flesh. Why? Because the flesh desires are against the spirit's desires. And the spirit's desires are against the flesh desires desires. These two are contrary one to the other and you can't do what you would do. The things that you need to do, you are not going to be able to do them because you are allowing the flesh to have sway and mastery in this church. And that, my friend, is going to produce destruction not good. So he goes on to tell them the works of the flesh are these. He gives us a whole list of them. There's adultery, there's fornication. There's witchcraft, there's variance, there's emulations, there's, there's uh, 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 revelings, all kinds of things he lists out. And he says, don't you know that those that do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God? <laughs> Whoa, they don't have any part in God's kingdom. And he says, I want you to understand as well. He said, but here's the fruit of the Spirit. There is love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance. Against such there is no law. If you do these things, there'll be no law. He said, if we therefore live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit, he said. Let's not be desirous of vainglory. We're not about this thing about who's going to be on the upper hand and who's going to get the glory and who's top dog. We're all one in Christ Jesus, all right? And we have all received this thing by faith and we should all live it by faith in the power of the Spirit and not the power of the flesh. That's the context. That's the context. Now, 
I'm going to come back to the first part of chapter 6 in a moment. But I want to, I want to get a little bit more to this idea of a contrast. I told you the story. And that gives you the background coming into chapter 6. Now watch what he does. He's given this contrast all throughout the letter and he does it again. He says, I want to tell you something. Don't be deceived, all right? Don't let this thing that's captivated you in this, this seducing spirit, if you will, that wants to lead you astray. That's what deceived means. Don't be led astray. Don't be taken into error right here. He says, God isn't mocked. Now, there may be a lot of folks today that are making fun of him. There may be a lot of folks today that are blaspheming his name. But can I tell you something? That won't be the last word. <laughs> Woo, glory. Can I tell you something? In the end, you're going to find out that what God says is always going to come to pass. Oh, yes, sir. Oh, this world thinks that they can go out and they can sow and they can do their thing and they can bring it about. Can I tell you, all of their devices are going to come to no avail. Oh, buddy, God will not be mocked. You will never sow corn and get a bean. You will never sow a bean and get an apple. You'll never sow an apple and get a pear. No, that would have been freakish. Nature would have been a freak. I'm going to go out here and plant me a, a row of apple trees, and they turn out to be peaches. I'd be a freak. My field would be a freak. I'd never know what was going on. I go and plant me apple trees. I hang out my sign. I got apples for sale, and I make my plans for harvest. I make my, I brought my cider press, and then instead of getting apples, I get pears. I mean, what in the world? world is going on here. That would be a world you can't live in. Nothing's consistent. No, sir, God's not a fool. And he's not going to be made a fool. That word mock means to turn your nose up and sneer at. I'm going to tell you on the final day, you won't turn your nose up at God. You won't look at God and say, the joke's on you. No, sir, it's on you, my friend. You sowed and you will reap. You sow to the wind, you'll get a whirlwind. You sow to the flesh, you'll get corruption. God placed a law and that law will come to pass whatever a man soweth that that whatever he sows that shall he reap he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. I want a greater harvest. There's got to be a greater sowing. Let's talk a little bit about this sowing. We understand the difference between flesh and spirit. Let's look at him quickly. Take your Bible and flip back up there in chapter 5. He just went through this. He just went through this flesh and spirit thing. I just quoted at least portions of it to you. Back in verse 19 of chapter 5, he gives you this harvest of the flesh, the works of the flesh. He tells you what they are. He said they're adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, simulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like of the which I tell you before, as I've also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. I just told you that. All right? 
You do these things. These are the works of the flesh. This is the harvest of corruption. Sow the adultery. Sow to your flesh and please the lust of your flesh. Commit the adultery. And you will get a harvest according to your sowing. You'll get the broken home that follows. You'll get the mistrust that follows. You'll get the venereal disease that comes with it. You'll get the mistrust of your children that goes along with it. You will reap the product of the lie. You will get an abundant harvest. And can I tell you, in the law of sowing and reaping, you will always reap more than you sow. We don't sow five ears of corn and get five ears of corn. We can sow a few kernels and get a couple of ears. Out of a few kernels of corn, we can get hundreds of kernels of corn. And I'm telling you, whatever you sow into your flesh, you sow the malice, you sow the envy, and you'll get far more you bargain for. Yes, you'll get a greater harvest than you expected. And it won't be the gratification of your own self-esteem. It'll be the destruction that comes from a hard heart and separated families and divided homes and divided churches and divided loyalties and the whole product and the cancer and the hatred and the malice that comes with it. And then he goes on and tell us the other harvest. But he doesn't call it the works of the Spirit. He calls it the fruit of the Spirit. It's the works of the flesh compared or contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit. Because this fruit is a product of life. Works in this context are a product of death. Corruption. Separation from God produces these works. Now quickly, hang with me just a moment. And he says, and he lists these nine fruit. Notice that they are not acts, but they involve acts. The works of the flesh were deeds. But those deeds will result in a particular emotional state. In a particular frame of mind and frame of existence. All of these things that will produce pleasure will never produce joy. Adultery is not the result of love. It's the result of disloyalty. And the harvest that will come from that will not be a greater affection and a greater contentment and a greater trust. It will be a greater distrust and a greater discontentment. There will be a fruit that will come out of those works. He lists the works and the fruit that will come will be the opposite. Instead of love, there will be disloyalty. Instead of joy, there'll be sorrow. Instead of peace, there'll be division. Oh, instead of gentleness, there'll be harshness. Oh, instead of meekness, there'll be self-assertion. Instead of faithfulness, there'll be unfaithfulness. Oh, instead of self-control, there'll be a lack of self-control. Oh, yes, instead of Patience and endurance. There will be impatience and there'll be a failure to keep your commitments and you will break your relationships and you will exalt yourself above God. But if the Spirit will come to your life and you'll surrender to Him 
He will produce in you. He will do a work in you so that the end product will be love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness. Hallelujah. Faith and meekness and temperance. And I can tell you something. If there is in your life an abundant harvest of these things, then you will not violate any law. You will not be going against the law. You will not be in any way. Because he said against these things there is no law. Hallelujah. God didn't make a law that violates love. God didn't make a law that violates joy. God didn't make a law that violates peace. God didn't make a law that violates self-control. No, the law, violators come with the adultery. It comes with the drunkenness. It comes with the lack of self-control. It comes with the lack of love and faithfulness and comes out of unfaithfulness. That's where the lawbreakers come from. So that these guys who tell you they're keeping the law and have brought division among you, they're violators of the law because they're workers according to the flesh. Now, I want to get to this final point here this morning. I want to show you something here. How does this thing now, how does this harvest happen? How do you sow to the flesh and sow to the spirit? He's told us what the harvest are like. He's contrasted them. Now I want to get to this last point. How do you do that? Well, let's talk about the flesh first. How do you sow to the flesh? How do you get this harvest, these works of the flesh? That's the works. That's the sowing. The adultery. The fornication, the idolatry, the witchcraft, the hatred, the variance, the emulations, the strife, the envy, all of those things. What do you do? In Ephesians chapter 2, turn over just for a moment. In Ephesians chapter 2, it's just the next book. Just turn right in your Bible. A few pages. And he speaks about, in verse 2. Where in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. The word desire is there, if I remember right, it's the same Greek word as will. Fulfilling the wills of the flesh and of the mind. The flesh had desires. The flesh wanted to do certain things. The temptation was not so much to do that thing, but to do it in a way that God forbid us to do. It was a temptation to satisfy a man desires the woman physically and intimately, and that was the temptation, but it wasn't a problem as long, and not even really a temptation, as long as he satisfies that desire. In other words, the desire was there in the body and something came to arouse it. And when it came aroused, the immediate temptation is satisfy it now. Satisfy it with this woman. Oh, but the reason and the spirit, if he is in control, will rise up and say, oh, no, sir, we will not permit that desire to raise its head now because that woman is not my wife. 
if that woman is my wife, then I am in free a country that I can, in a way that's honorable, I can satisfy that passion there because it's in the confines of God's law. But the temptation here is to enjoy that pleasure with somebody to whom I'm not married. And now it becomes a sin because now I'm going to satisfy the pleasure in a way that is forbidden, in a way that violates the law of God. But the will, the flesh is crying out to dominate my will, my own humanistic reason now. It now must go to work. If I've got the mind of the Spirit, I'll say shut that down right now. We will not think that thought. We will not go down that road. We will look the other way. We will have nothing to do with this. In this life, Holy Ghost is in charge and not flesh. Oh, but if flesh is pulling hard and if flesh is dominant, the mind will reason. Well, it's okay because we're in love. It's okay because my wife don't love me anymore. It's okay because everybody does it. It's okay the pastor does it. It's okay the deacon does it. It's okay. I know the folks that sit across the aisle in the church, they do it. It's okay our president does it. It's okay our congressmen do it. Come on now. Yeah. yeah, it's become acceptable and no longer taboo. Well, you know what? It must be okay because I no longer have feelings for my wife. It's okay for me to satisfy this. And down the road you go out of the own humanistic reasoning, flesh, fleshly reasoning and fleshly passion will lead you to a harvest of death. Go ahead. You have the affair. You have the fling. But I'm telling you, somewhere your sin will find you out. And what you had in the beginning will not be the ending. It will bring corruption. So how did you sow? You sowed by surrendering your will to the desire or colloquially or to, to parabolically to put it, the, the will of the flesh and your own humanistic reasoning. And when you obeyed your own thoughts and your own passions, you sowed to the flesh. And you got a harvest out of it. Didn't go too well when your wife found out, did it? She didn't say, this is great. I'm so happy you cheated on me. Didn't go that way, did it? Your children are now perplexed. Because they don't know if mom and daddy love any longer. That's their place of safety. And their safety net was just destroyed. Because daddy don't keep his word. What other things are he, is he lying about? Hello? I've never found one, a man to tell just one lie. You tell one, you got to tell two to cover up the first one. So that's it. So let's bring it over here. How do you sow to the Spirit? By yielding your will to the mastery of the Spirit. Now I'm going to bring something in here. Let's go back now to this Galatians chapter 6. I don't know what time it is. Let's not worry about it. <clears throat> let's go back to Galatians chapter 6. Let's watch something here. It almost looks as if it's out of place. It almost looks as if it was a weird thing for Paul to say at this point. Let's look at it. Verse 6. 
Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. What in the world does that have to do with the price of eggs on the street? I mean, you're reading about this and you're thinking, what did that mean, Paul? Now, if you've never said that, you probably never read it. I've read it, and I've asked that question. Why did he say that? That don't even seem to fit. It don't even seem to go with it. Oh, but it does. Let's look at it. Let him that is taught in the word. At the moment, for purposes of this preaching and illustration, that's where you're sitting right now. He talks about the one that's being taught, and then he talks about the one that's teaching. At the moment, that will be where I'm standing. So you have student, or the taught, and you have the teacher. And then you have this word communicate. The word communicate here is the idea of fellowship, partnership, participation. It means that you are sharing with this person. That the teacher and the taught are participating in the same thing. There's something that they are sharing together. And he tells us what it is in good. The word things is added really. But in all good. In other words, he speaks about good is the idea of benevolence. But it's a moral character. A goodness that flows out of a good heart. And a moral character. So that the teacher, if he is doing things that are right. And is teaching moral principles. And living those moral principles. And the top is receiving that word oh then they become participants in that so that in the common morality and good there should be a participation between the taught and the teacher now you can immediately get some context here because the teachers that have been going down to churches of Galatia had been producing much good have they I'll tell you why because they're not good Your student isn't going to rise above your teacher. And if you get corruption in the teacher, you're going to get corruption in the student if the teaching is followed. You're going to participate in the same thing. Now, Paul is calling them back to his teaching because he's the one, he said, and he'll talk about a little later. He said, I'm whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. I'm the one that brought the gospel to you. I'm the one that came down where you were. He said, matter of fact, that gospel, I already told you in this message, if someone brings another gospel, let him be accursed. I brought a gospel to you. I taught you, and I don't live like those cats are living. The message I preached uh, didn't preach the mess that they bring in. Uh, no, sir. The message I preached to you produced holiness. Uh, it produced righteousness. Uh, it produced love. It produced joy. But their message is producing another harvest. Division, scandal. Now watch. Watch what he does now. I want to I take this down just a little further here. Let's go back to the section I overlooked for a moment. Chapter 6 and verse 1. As he speaks to those who are spiritual. He said, brethren, therefore, if a brethren be o- brother be overtaken in a fault. Is that what he says? Amen. He that is spiritual. Yeah. What's he tell him to do? Restore him, right? right. Yeah. 
considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Restore him in a spirit of meekness, he said. Considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. This is something Paul has had to do. He mentioned back in chapter 2. Paul's drawing them back to himself, to his teaching, and to his example. Remember, this is the man that says, follow me as I follow Christ. He put himself forth as an example unto the people and said, you can imitate my life. He told Timothy in his last letter to him in chapter uh, 3, I think it is, he said, you know my manner of life, my persecutions and all that I endured. You know how I live, Timothy. The things I have taught you that you've received, he said, you teach them unto others. But right back in chapter 2, there was one of those godly brothers who was overtaken in a fault. His name was Peter. Told you about him in this message. He got caught away with that dissimulation. He brought division in the house of God. He was overtaken by fault. But what Paul did was he first rebuked him and Peter will immediately correct him and Paul restores him. In a spirit of meekness, Paul did not go about and be superior over this man, Peter. He's still an apostle to the Gentiles, and he never committed a sin. That that it was a a, a great sin of disgrace, but it was enough of that. It was a sin, and Paul's going to restore this man, and it will not be the flesh that restores. It'll be a spiritual man. It'll be a man that's led by the Spirit. It'll be a man that's got that love, joy, peace, and long-suffering. Now he goes on to tell him, he says, watch, he says, here it is. Bear you one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That was a burden that Paul had to bear. Peter brought shame to the church. Paul had to bear it. The church had to deal with it. Paul will have to write the letter. Paul will have to deal with the mess that comes from a lot of that junk. And Paul is going to have to bear it. He didn't say you'll fulfill the law of Moses. He said you'll fulfill the law of Christ. Glory to God. These fellas are bound to bring you to a law that will circumcise your body. But, buddy, I'm telling you, you can make every mark in your body you want to, but it ain't going to do one thing to restore a church and bring it back to the unity that it needs. Somebody's got to be led by the Spirit around here. Somebody's got to have a harvest that has come about when the Spirit is all this sown to the flesh. is brought corruption and destruction. He said, I'm telling you, somebody has got to be spiritual around here. He said, now, don't you get lifted up in this. That's what's happening. These guys, they just want to glory in your flesh. They're all lifted up. And you get proud against one. I'm circumcised. You're not. I'm doing this and you do that. Look where I'm at. Look where you're at. He said, don't you, don't you think above yourself, he said. He said, because you do that, you deceive yourself. Buddy, you're nothing. Your righteousness was filthy rags. You got in this thing not through your strict obedience to a law. You got in this thing because you bowed in humble mercy and humble repentance before a God of mercy and a God of grace. And God poured that grace, that unmerited favor. He poured out upon your sorry hide and he lifted you out of the degradation. He lifted you out of the dirt. He lifted you out of the mud hole. You didn't get here because you're a great man. You're great because God is great. Hallelujah. You're not a good man because you obeyed a law, but you will obey a law because.
because the good God that is in you has made you good. Hallelujah. And he goes on to say, let every man prove his own work. I'm not too far off from being done. Let every man prove his own work and then shall he have rejoiced in himself alone and not another for every man shall bear his own burden. Hey, fellas, let me tell you something. He said this before. Examine yourselves. Prove your own selves. Whether you be in the faith. He said, you look right down inside of you. You examine your own works and what you're doing. Don't examine what you're doing by the approval or disapproval of the Judaizers. By the approval or even the disapproval of the preacher. I want you to look down and see right now and know in your heart whether what you are doing is motivated by a love for Christ or some pride. It's some silly, stinking pride that's got in your heart and has lifted you up above your brothers and brought division in the church. Tell me, look in deep in your heart. And I'm here to tell you, if you look in your heart, oh, and you've got an honest look, the Holy Ghost will reveal to you where you're at. He'll let you know who you are and you'll be able to say, yes, I am walking in the integrity of my heart I am acting out of God's love and I am acting out of a fear of God and I know God's love is motivating me and that's being demonstrated in my life I haven't lost my joy I haven't lost my faith I haven't lost my long suffering I haven't lost my peace I still stand in the liberty where Christ makes free or if you're honest you may have to admit my worship has died down the word is no longer a delight to me. Every time I go to church, it sounds like the preacher is preaching at me. And instead of being able to rejoice in the message and receive it, even when it needed correction or I needed correction, instead of being able to rejoice, now I get angry at him. Where I used to love to be with the brothers, now I don't care as much about being in their fellowship. Where I used to miss their company, I don't miss their company any longer. Where I used to come to church with a delight, now I come in and I'm a little sour looking. Where they always used to hear my voice in joyful expression and praise, now it's monotonous and mechanical. But you got to be dead honest with yourself. Prove your own work. Then you'll have rejoicing in yourself and yourself alone. Oh, glory to God. He said, every man's going to bear his own burden. Let me tell you right now, in the end, let me tell you a little bit about what that means. Because in the end, buddy, you better examine yourself. And you better search yourself. And you better know who you are. And you better know where you stand. Because when you come to judgment day, you're going to bear your own burden. All right? You ain't going to be able to look at the Judaizers and say, well, they influenced me. Well, they taught me. You ain't going to be able to look over and say, well, Paul, he preached up this way and that way, and they made me mad, and folks didn't treat me right. On the day of judgment, it's you and Jesus. It's you and Jesus. It's you and Jesus. You won't blame your culture. You can't blame it. Your burden will be yours to bear. Your judgment will be yours to bear. And no excuse will be allowable in the judgment day of God Almighty. Yes. Preach. 
Now he says to us, let me get to my message here now. Now he says, let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. In other words, let me notice now he connects this idea of the word. That becomes the essential thing when you sow to the spirit. When you yield to the will of the spirit, you don't know the will of the spirit except by the word. Let me tell you this another way. Go through the Bible. Go to Matthew chapter 13 and he will talk about a sower went forth to sow. And he sowed and some fell on this ground and on this ground and that ground and he talked about the seed it's the word of God and it's sowed into a life and that life becomes now a seed itself because the word is demonstrated in this in that life let me tell you something there ain't but one seed the Holy Ghost can work with there ain't but one plant he'll bless there ain't but one seed he'll germinate there ain't but one seed he'll cultivate there ain't but one seed that'll produce a harvest and it's the word of God the Holy Ghost will bless he won't bless a lie he won't bless hypocrisy he won't bless your philosophy you've got to have the word of God there is no other seed that he will bring to fruition and bless hallelujah that's why he talks about the teacher and the taught. Because if you're going to sow to the spirit, you got to have a teacher and you got to have a learner. Oh, and let the learners become teachers and let the teachers always be learners. We all will do some teaching and we all must be taught. But in the end, what we want is a man who teaches the word and we want to receive the word. And when that word comes in and we yield to it and we say, Holy Ghost, apply it. Let me live it. Show me how to put it into practice. That There'll be a harvest. That harvest will be love and joy and peace yes. that he mentioned. Yes. You got no joy? You ain't been putting much word in. Come on now. Oh, yes. If I go out, he said, well, I got the spirit. I'm not telling you you didn't have the spirit. I'm just telling you you haven't been giving me any seed to work with. Oh, yes. We got the spirit. We got a shout. We got an emotional high. But whenever we need the harvest, we need the Holy Ghost to produce a harvest. We ain't giving him nothing to produce it with. We haven't given him any seeds. He's got nothing to work with. We've given him an emotional high. We gave him a shout. But we didn't give him any Bible principle that will tell you how to live your life. You can't produce joy merely through church attendance. If you're going to produce joy, you've got to have men are taught. Just, this is just one principle. James chapter 1, my brethren count on all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. You have to teach them about temptation and trial. That temptation and trial are not there to destroy you. They're there to perfect your faith. God's just putting your faith through the fire. But when you look at your temptation, oh, what am I going to do? Oh, it's going to destroy me. Oh, where am I going to go? Come on. The Holy Ghost ain't got nothing to work with. Come on, there it is. You ain't giving him no seed. What can he do? 
All he can do is try to patch up your emotions. All he can do is get you in church again and praise the Lord. Let the folks get around you and pray for you. I just always feel better when they pray for me. I always feel better when they lay hands on me. You need something more than that. You need a new philosophy. You need a new perspective. You need a new Bible principle that's put down in your heart and say, wait a minute. I'm facing trouble here, but I am not facing alone. I heard what Brother Preach, Brother Woods preached last week. I'm not facing this trial on my own. I'm going to face it in the power of the Holy Ghost. God is with me in the valley. God is with me in the valley. God is with me on the mountain. I will believe the word. Here's where we're going right here. Right here. If we want a more abundant harvest in 2020, then we have got to do more hearing, believing, and applying of God's word. Yes. 